Blog Talk Radio. Robinson on today. Uh, this week, hey, and this uh, this week's installment, we're going to talk about uh, some legal considerations for driverless cars, and we have a special guest. Um, but before we we get into talking to uh, Mr. Walker Smith about uh, what he does and and some considerations for the cars, I kind of wanted to go over a little bit of the common or current events for this week, Gene. Do you have anything that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, there are some uh, interesting press releases that have come out from the FAA concerning small unmanned aircraft. And it's kind of interesting to note that the press releases don't necessarily match reality, don't you think? (laughs) Well, you know, we've got to keep up with what we know from the FAA, right? (laughs) That's great. Well, and the news stories are getting a little out of control, too. I saw where uh, Toscano got lambasted uh, on InfoWars, and they said he was, like, in full damage control. And then, I don't know if you read that, but I got huffpoed yesterday. Um, I will say that somebody was was a little loose and fast with the quotes. Um, I sound a little nuttier than usual, but... uh, I think, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think that the media is kind of turning on us a little bit. Uh, they're really kind of people are really up in arms about the uh, privacy issues. And one other tidbit I'm going to throw out here is I'm hearing from reliable sources that get this, Gene, the the administration's telling the FAA to slow down because they don't want this privacy thing to work into a big issue. What do you think about that? I am so shocked. <laughs> they are politicizing an issue like this. I can't believe it. I, I know. You know, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, you know, I, I used to call for, uh, let's say, that this integration effort needed, like, you know, a restart. And now I'm starting to think it might need a priest. You know, <laughs> if it gets any worse, it'll totally die off. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's getting kind of crazy out there. That's uh, that's not really surprising considering the the sort of politics that are going on. But uh, there are a lot of agencies out there that honestly believe that they can start flying. And uh, I think that the FAA is going to have a tough row to hoe when they try to start shutting these guys down after their 90-day deadline has already passed, don't you think? I think so. And I've been talking to people out there and, uh, you know, a lot of these companies, man, their phones are ringing off the hook. People are calling them. They're interested in buying. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Um, and I think uh, some people are saying full steam ahead, damn the torpedoes. Uh, it should be pretty interesting um, in the the not too distant future. All right. Well, let's let's move on. Uh, you know, now that we've uplifted everyone's spirits. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Bryant Walker-Smith. He's a lawyer, former transportation engineer, and current fellow at two Stanford centers, 
Center for Internet and Society and Center for Automotive Research, and he researches law and policy um, of self-driving vehicles. <laughs> Brian, it sounds like you're a busy guy. <laughs> well, Patrick, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, that's good. So, yeah, do you have a do you have a social life, or are you just a fellow at these two places at Stanford? You're busy all the time doing that. What's going on? So, one of the offices where I work, five feet um, from me, is a self driving car. So, it's a, it's a fun place to hang out, and it's not one that I can complain about spending time at. Are you you do you working in the Vale Center at Stanford? Exactly. I'm over at Vail. I'm also at the law school and, and over at one of the other engineering buildings. Now, do you so drive I always joke do, when I want to... Pardon? Do you drive or do you uh, ride a bike or driverless vehicle between the two offices? <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> I bike okay. and haven't made that self-driving yet. Well, I did like I did enjoy the Vail Center at Stanford. It's pretty nice. Um, I, I got a little chuckle out of the uh, SOPs for operating the espresso machine there. That was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, you also you're going to be um, you're going to we met at the Silicon Valley Robotics Block Party in March, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that's for the first time we kind of conversed. Uh, you're also going to be a guest at uh, the Silicon Valley chapter meeting where you're going to come and talk to us, which is a good thing. And if anyone's in the area near uh, Moffett Field, NASA Ames, you can come by on uh, Thursday, uh, next Thursday, between eight, 6 and 8, and uh, come on in and, and uh, meet with us there. But I wanted, to, um, I wanted you to introduce yourself, Brian, maybe talk a little bit about uh, how you got involved in this, why you got involved with it, uh, a little background if you could. I'd be happy to. So as you mentioned, I used to work as a transportation engineer. And in that role, I really confronted this American ideal of cars as the ultimate expression of and tool of freedom. And that's the idea that we have of a car, right? You get in your car and you can drive anywhere. The, the road's the limit. But that was frustrating because cars don't necessarily mean freedom. There are issues of congestion. There are mobility concerns for people who are disabled or young or elderly. You have 10,000 people turning 65 a day right now. And to the extent that we are dependent on cars, those are populations that are ill-served. Um, and that ultimately led me to look at transportation much more holistically and to look at transportation as a policy issue and a legal issue as much of as an engineering issue. That led into law, where uh, my particular focus was administrative law. That's legislation and regulations and decisions that are, are made by state and federal administrative agencies, like, for example, the Department of Transportation, or you were alluding to um, the Federal Communications Commission or the Federal Aviation Administration, agencies like that. Um, that's been a real useful background for looking at, at self-driving vehicles because so much of this is happening at the regulatory level and at the standards level. Um, I also focused in international law, which surprised me to learn actually relates to self-driving vehicles. Um, so we say that in law we deal with precedent. That is, we look to what's already been decided. We look to what, how the law has already dealt with issues. Um, and... When we're dealing with something this new, like self-driving vehicles, there is no precedent. There is no cases or law directly on point, which means right. that everything is relevant. <laughs> right, so right. as you said, I, I stay busy. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, you know, yeah, the um, you know the the uh, schlemucker gets a little deep in the federal realm, and uh, you know, like the Department of Transportation, whatever. Me and me and Gene have a little bit of um, you know experience with these guys. And I know that it can be trying when you get at these types of levels. Uh, you know, you hit on some other good points, you know, about the freedom and Americans thinking about cars and everything else. And, you know, I got to be honest, I don't have the love affair with cars that I used to. I mean, you you look at these television car commercials and they're, you know, driving up Highway 1 and it's totally empty and the guy's driving the roads. <laughs> and you're like, you know, last time I was out there, I'm behind a, con- a convoy of Winnebago's and I'm not enjoying myself. I'm getting car sick <laughs> and I'm yelling and screaming out the window. Um, you know, I guess there was a good uh, Arthur Schopenhauer quote about buying books, and it would be great if you could buy the time to, you know, read the book. And I think it would be great with a car if you could buy the road and you could be out there by yourself. Do you uh, do you see uh, in any of your research? Do you see this this kind of changing? Is it like people aren't really just going for rides anymore? It's kind of a utilitarian type of thing. I just need to get from point A to point B, or. What what are you what are you seeing out there as far as the, the driving demographic goes? So you're absolutely right that it is a huge shift from a hundred years ago when engineers actually built they were called park and pleasure drives for the sole purpose of treating driving as the park experience, as the recreation in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly the vast majority of transportation is not that today. On the other hand, a lot of the transportation is not perhaps strictly necessary. That is, it is incidental. It allows people to do something else. But if driving were not available, they might take other options, other alternatives. For example, they might shop closer. They might um, drive more locally. They might simply use the Internet for services that would not require the use of a car. And in that sense, we are seeing a demographic change that there's been a good deal of research that's looked at younger generations who are much less interested in getting a driver's license or owning a car, either as a means to their independence or as simply a status symbol. We're also seeing the probably the effects of the, the recession on just general vehicle miles traveled, which is it has been for the last uh, really century a, a huge increase in total miles traveled to three trillion miles in the U.S. last year, um, and that's leveling off. It'll be very interesting to see if that trend continues or not. Hmm. Well, Brian, Brian, wouldn't you think that uh, that would be a, there would be a regional division there as well? There'd be more. Uh, interest in uh, self-driving car in the in the urban areas versus the rural areas or the, the the ranch areas where there's wide open spaces. It's certainly possible. One of the questions is when we see the end goal of this technology deployed. That is a, a fully capable self-driving car that really doesn't require a driver in any sense, and that's that's a ways off. But who will that actually appeal to? Um, and it could certainly change the urban environment, anything from parking to uh, circulation, but it could also change uh, rural land use, that people may be willing to live further from their jobs if they can get in the car and catch up on their sleep, or if they can bill an extra of time, extra hour of time while in the car. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, you ask who would it appeal to, and, you know, i got to tell you, 
I think uh, there's there's several scenarios where uh, it would be something that people would want. You know, maybe an emergency situation. I'm having a medical condition and I can hit the Red Cross button on the uh, dashboard and it takes me to the emergency room. Or, you know, you hit the breathalyzer and uh, either, you know, the car can make the determination that I'm drinky poo or we're heading by the corkscrew for a nightcap. You know, I think uh, in either one of those situations, at least I'm not getting the DUI. I got driver service. It's a good, it's a good thing. Um, and I guess that would kind of, you know, maybe lead into another question that would be, uh, is, is there a pushback? I, I, you know, we know from, from the drone, as they call them, an unmanned aircraft system thing, you know, people are a little apprehensive about this technology. How about, how about the uh, self-driving vehicles? Do people have apprehension that you've talked to? Well, we tend to love technology until it's actually real and feasible. And right now, for for all the public discussion of self-driving vehicles and all the research on them, we don't actually have a vehicle that is capable of driving itself without human oversight yet. Um, so when we're talking about these spectrum of technologies, it's an open question how the public will ultimately react to the kinds of technologies that are possible, the kinds that actually show up in production vehicles, and then the the possibility of a truly self-driving vehicle. And then again, you see a range of reactions. A lot of people are enthusiastic. A lot of people are apprehensive. And some just say, well, I wouldn't be willing to spend a lot of money on that, that I trust myself as a driver, and I don't trust the other people out there. But <laughs> I... Um, I would not pay a lot for that. The, the interesting thing will be when this is an actual option, will people see the benefits in the way that they have for smartphones? Where if you look back you know, 10, 15 years, there was also less apprehension, but more just general indifference. Why would I need a phone that does that? Mm. Yeah, and now uh, I can't live without it for a hundred bucks a month. Um, and you know, and I guess the uh, another one would be because you're talking about this eventuality. And you know, I'm in uh, Napa this weekend up in the mountains, and I'm buying some oil for the truck, and uh, talking to the guy behind the counter there. And the guy at Napa says, "Well, you know, we got talking about this," and he says, um, "You know, who's." When this becomes an eventuality, where, where does the responsibility or ultimate liability uh, lay for mishaps? You know, is it going to be the driver, the or, or I guess the owner, or the guy who's writing the code, or can you, maybe you can uh, you know enlighten us on that? Absolutely, liability often comes up as a concern for manufacturers and others in in the the chain of supply, and for insurers as well. The, the, the first thing we can say is that the hope is that automation will reduce the crash rate. Now, that's not certain, um, but that's certainly the hope of researchers. On the other hand, it's not likely to eliminate all crashes, so there still will be some. And for those crashes that still occur, um, as, as you suggested, manufacturers will be theoretically liable for a greater share of, of the crash damages than they are today. Um, and I, I say theoretical because law operates in strange ways. Uh, we don't ultimately know what judges and juries will do or how strong a case defense lawyers or plaintiff's attorneys will have. Now, if we think about it in the abstract, it's not a difficult problem. That, that simply means that costs that are currently borne 
by drivers in the form of insurance are in the future borne by drivers in the form of a higher initial retail price or a higher lease price or a higher charge for a subscription self-driving service. The real obstacles are, are twofold, and that is getting to that future um, because there's a lot of uncertainty both about the extent of that liability and the extent of the reputational risks that an established company would take on by offering a vehicle that may have an uncertain public reception. So it's the difficulty of pricing that uncertainty that may be more of a barrier than the actual functioning of the liability system. And there are certain ways that we can look at providing greater certainty. One of those is the collection and use of data. The other is looking at how recalls are handled. If a vehicle is put out there that needs a software update, should that require you to bring the car in? Should the car drive itself in? Should the entire autonomous system be shut down until the manufacturer can design a new software patch? Um, should it just be updated remotely in a in a beta version? Um, these are these are open questions. Yeah, and they're all <clears throat> really good questions. Uh, you know, I was thinking about some of those. Uh, you know, I mean, we tried to relate it. Me and Gene are usually relating things in a 3D environment, where if you have any of these issues that come falling out of the sky, and and people have obvious apprehensions, and you know, uh, we've advocated for like cracking the door open with small frangible aircraft. Um, same thing kind of with a car, you know, to me, again, this seems kind of like a no-brainer. Yeah, you know, there's still going to be issues and mechanical failures and whatnot. But when I look at it, I think you're going to have something where you're going to have a safer vehicle with reduced crashes, but are, are the crashes going to totally go away or mishaps going to go away? And I would say, no, they're not. But, you know, again, let's look at the statistics, the, the DOT statistics for drive uh, cars with drivers in them. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I blow down the road here, and you got these, um, you know, people are on the cell phone, or they're texting, and I don't want to mention any names, or putting on their makeup, or whatever else, and you're like, geez, you know, you, you think you could drive the car, you know? But, <laughs> you know, moving forward, it'd be great if you could hit the autopilot, and you could put on your makeup on your way to work, and I don't have to, you know, risk my life out there. So... You know, that that may be something as far as a takeaway you could consider. I mean, I, I still think there'll be mishaps, but, you know, that another question that, that, that kind of feeds into is what kind of uh, software-based systems are these? And I, I used to make jokes about with the unmanned aircraft that I hope these aren't Windows-based <laughs> systems because we could have problems. <laughs> Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And if you look, you look back to that era, there are all sorts of jokes on the internet about a Microsoft car or an Apple car, right? Right. Um, what it would or would not do. Um, I'm actually amazed by the the particular software platforms that that show up in certain components, um, and it's it's a surprising range of of software. You know, ultimately the the production versions of any of these systems you see. Um, will have extensive testing. And one of the open issues is, is what standards should be established for that testing. And when you're dealing with such low rates of incident, how you provide certainty that these systems are, in fact, better than humans. 
um, you know, if you were to, with statistical um, confidence, say that a vehicle was safer than a human driver, you would have to drive it about 750,000 representative miles without incident. That's a that's a pretty big number for um, for research purposes. Humans, like you said, are very imperfect drivers, um, and some 90 to 95% of all crashes are caused, at least in part, by human error. On the other hand, we're incredibly good at driving, and the range of, of circumstances that we do confront are, are truly astounding. Of course, you know, I think that I, I, a little bit at a time, I think the public is being exposed to portions of the autonomy that the vehicles are coming up with. For example, the Japanese have a car that will park itself. So that small increment is being introduced to the public so it gains acceptance. Wouldn't you think that that's kind of the way it's going to be eased into the, the kind of the public view? You are absolutely right that these, these technologies fall along a spectrum. Um, and self-parking cars are one example. You know, these self-park systems that are available on the market from Japanese and other automakers um, will generally park themselves as long as you apply the brake and gas. Um, so the human is still in some sense in control. But there are other technologies that are also um, represent some driver assistance. You think of electronic stability control or anti-lock brakes or um, drive-by-wire. Steering and braking, those you simply suggest to the car that you want to turn or brake. And the car says, well, let me see. You know, I think I can do that. Let me do it for you so that you don't spin out of control. Um, yeah. And those... Oh, sorry, Jim? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I stepped on you there. Go for it. Continue yeah, So thought. we are... Yeah, we're we're seeing that incremental technology ending up in production systems, and we may ultimately see deployment scenarios for self-driving cars that that reflect that. That is, advanced driver assistance or systems that are restricted to particular geographic areas. Here, I'm thinking of military bases or retirement communities. We might see the technology deployed only on certain freeway corridors or under certain conditions. So you think of US 101 and how many people would, would pay for an extra hour of billable time on that road every day. We might see them in mixed traffic or we might see them in dedicated lanes. Um, you know, they may have their use as a valet service. So you can just get out of your car and it will park itself in a controlled environment or some limited deployment of taxi. So it's a, it's, a mixture of what technology is available and what are the reasonable, commercially prudent scenarios to use it. Well, and what about, uh, you know, I liked uh, kind of how you're into uh, the, the, the moniker of self-driving vehicles, which kind of opens it up a little bit. I mean, what about, you know, farm equipment? Or you know uh, installations. You you mentioned military, but what what about uh, maybe irrigation districts or whatever else, and and vehicles that uh, could could do jobs on their own. You know maybe like water trucks or whatever else, or you know harvest wheat or whatever. Is 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 that a consideration also, or is that outside your purview? Absolutely, those raise different and in some ways more limited legal issues. But we already see um, considerable progress in autonomy in agriculture. So 
vehicles that farmers can buy today that, while not entirely autonomous, are um, pretty far along, certainly further along than some automotive systems in the area of, of mining. Rio Tinto, which is a huge mine operator, is completely automating a um, number of its hmm. mines. Anything from the, the huge trucks that drive down to the, the trains that take um, the materials to, to be processed. Well, and I think that, you know, you just touched on trains, too. I mean, there are a lot of systems uh, around the world, you know, the, the, where there are no drivers in the trains, and they are all automated. And it's I, I think this is just kind of like a progression. And and it's kind of funny when you talk to people about this technology and the, the automatic cars and everything else, you know, even you're saying, oh, we'd have to drive 750,000 miles or whatever. <laughs> you know, we're used to the DOT, uh, arm of the DOT being the FAA. Um, you know, is telling us we we have to have numbers of like ten to the minus nine. So, right. <laughs> th- th- those are some mm-hmm. like astronomical numbers. I know. I was telling him, you know, I'd probably I don't know. I was uh, I think somebody calculated it out that it'd take two hundred years for me to fly to uh, <laughs> get that kind of testing, and I was taking vitamins and whatnot, and I just didn't think I was gonna I was gonna fulfill that test, you know, matrix, but uh, you know, <laughs> so it's not too bad with the car. But um, now, what do you think about? Uh, I know that Google, you know, uh, is has jumped in this with both feet, and some people had uh, kind of said, you know, well, you know, the party's over, Google's in. There's there's no way uh, there's any going to be any room for anyone else in this market. What do you think about that? Google is is one of of many companies that is is researching this. I would say Google deserves a lot of credit for fostering discussion um, in public and for pushing regulators to begin really focusing on self-driving vehicles as a a distinct possible technology. Um, But you talk to a number of automakers and suppliers, and then they have their own research going back decades. Um, so I don't I don't think I would say that the party is, is over. And in fact, I would say that any problem, particularly that of, of road safety and mobility, really needs smart minds from different perspectives. Um, and that, that means a lot of things. For example, you look at software as generally being developed in the order of, say, six months versus cars being developed in order of every six years. Um, traditionally, cars and automotive transportation have been thought of as a product rather than a service. Um, and that could change. So instead of buying a self-driving package that simply starts the moment you turn your car and lasts until you junk it to the junkyard, it could conceivably be part of a subscription package that's only available at certain times on certain routes and that needs to be serviced every now and then to continue using it. And it, it also goes to the idea of our, our shared digital infrastructure. So Google is brilliant at collecting and processing and understanding data. These cars will require vast amounts of data and produce vast amounts of data. Just one example are the highly sophisticated maps of roads that, for example, Google's system relies on. So these the route on which it, it drives must be carefully mapped out ahead of time. Um, will Google collect those road data? Will they become a public service? Will other companies collect and then sell those road data, including data on, say, construction, crashes, and congestion, all of which 
may be necessary for completely autonomous operation? Uh, definitely some, some new business opportunities were just brought to light there. I, I, you know, I kind of have the same feeling about uh, Google jumping in. I know that Google had expressed some interest in uh, unmanned aircraft, and that was right about the time that the uh, FA kind of clamped down on it, which was too bad because uh, I, I agree with you. You know, there's some smart people over there. There's a good business model. It'd be nice to have um, some of that jumping in on our behalf. I think the FAA, though, that somebody must have looked at that and went, whoa, you know, that's too crazy. We can't even deal with those people and jumped out because they're not really, uh, they're not, I mean, the, the, the FAA thing, I, I, I had another conversation with some people today and they were like, you know, well, where are the engineers? How come they don't have any engineers over there? And I'm like, whoa, you know, let's not start bringing science into the FAA equation because they won't know what to do with it. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off the track with that one. The uh, conversation today has been uh, very enlightening. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, again, it's kind of a different mindset for, for Gene and I uh, thinking about a 3D environment and being in a 2D <laughs> yeah. environment. But yeah. uh, Well, like you can say, with, with, with your planes, you have a little more space to maneuver, but it's harder to pull over. <laughs> exactly. A little yeah, bit. You it's a little bit more difficult if you have a little <laughs> issue there. But uh, I look forward to seeing this technology in the future, and I look forward to uh, seeing you at the meeting. And I also wanted to say that um, Bryant is going to be at the AUVSAI Driverless Car Summit June 12th through 13th in Detroit. And you are going to be a panelist uh, discussing the topic of understanding the legal, legal issues of driverless car integration. And I know that AUVSI is really uh, putting that one out there, and I think that show is going to be very big. I'd like to thank you for being on today's show, and uh, hopefully we'll maybe get to talk to you again in the future. Thank you both. All right. Have a good day, and until next week, uh, we'll see you then.